Our Favorite Albums is brought to you by Complete Data Systems. Get powerful retail software built for independently owned retail stores. To see the software and how it can improve your retail business, go to retailprodemo.com. You know, the way we consume music has changed drastically over the past year. As we sit here today in our little recording studio, we are roughly eight months into our new normal of COVID, where we've been shut in our houses and shut out of our typical daily regimens. For the record, it's not just how we consume music. The way music is being made now is way different than it was a year ago. The industry already shifted to single releases versus a full album release in the years leading up to now. But with the COVID shutdown and with access to modern technology, an artist can create a full top-notch recording studio inside their house. And you might not be able to tell the difference between it and one recorded in a big fancy studio. See Billie Eilish as an example. She and her brother recorded their album, When We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go?, while sitting on their beds in their modest little home studio. Anyone could do the same with equipment purchased from Amazon. Back in 1981, though, this wasn't the case. If you wanted an album-quality recording, you had to have massive equipment, both in size as well as price and quality. The idea of making an entire album in your bedroom wasn't really something that happened, and definitely not for a major recording artist who was following up a multi-platinum album that had landed number one overall on the charts that just came out a year before. But recording a full album in his bedroom was not what Bruce Springsteen set out to do when he recorded Nebraska. At the end of the year in 1981, the boss asked one of his roadies to find a tape player that he could mess around with on some songs in his house when he was just bored and wanted to write some songs. And he ended up making what I consider to be Bruce Springsteen's finest album that went to number three on the charts, was one of the greatest albums of the entire 80s, and frankly, could be credited with creating a whole new genre of songwriting. And he didn't even have COVID to thank for it. In this episode of Our Favorite Albums, we invited one of our buddies into the studio to help us break down Bruce Springsteen's 1982 masterpiece, Nebraska. Our Favorite Albums is a commentary, criticism, and music review podcast. All tunes are copyrighted and owned by the artists, not us. We just have to tell... <laughs> Motherfucker. <laughs> we are just here to tell our opinions, which obviously are our own and don't reflect any artist, a sponsor, or whatever. This is Our Favorite Albums. Thank you for tuning in to Our Favorite Albums, a podcast focusing on talking tunes one album at a time. 
I'm your host, Michael, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jason. What's going on? And today, we're covering Bruce Springsteen's 1982 album, Nebraska. Now, typically, we would just dive right into our chosen album for the episode, but today, we've invited a special guest to join us. We do. Jason, thanks for hanging out with us, man. Hey, guys. Thanks. We have two Jasons at the table. Let's make it complicated. (laughs) We were talking before, since we have two Jasons, how are we going to designate which Jason was which? So, uh, we're going to call our guest... Uh, by his last name, Hanks. And so if you hear us say Hanks, then that's who we're talking about. That's Jason, about. welcome to our favorite albums, buddy. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah. Yeah. So a uh, little background on Jason. Uh, Jason 1 and I uh, played a little band together. Jason 2 and Jason 1 <laughs> playing a little band together. <laughs> and so we're all musicians. Uh, Jason was one of our first uh one of our first fans that, that tuned in with us and talks a lot of music with us. And if you'll hear us talk from time to time, we'll joke a little bit. He is the, uh, <laughs> he's the butt of our Buddy Holly reoccurring inside joke. <laughs> which came about because the I think it was the first podcast we did, um, the, our favorite songs one. We made, we made a comment about Buddy Holly being overrated, which which prompted your ire a little bit, if I yeah, remember kinda, correctly. Yeah, kind of... Uh... Got to me a little bit. But, <laughs> yeah. Jason, you know, so so growing up, uh, I had the choice of either either Elvis Presley or or Buddy Holly. That's the two artists my dad listened to. Okay, and I wasn't a big Elvis Presley fan. I wasn't an Elvis Presley fan at all right. at the time. Now I can appreciate his music a little more, but at that time, I, I chose Buddy Holly, and and this well, kind of stuck. So. All all, uh, all messing with you aside, you chose well. So. <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah, that's, that's 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 Elvis, Elvis, Elvis is remarkably overrated. But. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I backed both of you guys up. You guys both sing and play guitar. I backed both of you guys up playing uh, yeah. albums, uh, not anything off of this, but similar this kind of stuff, right? You know, basically a guy and his guitar. And yeah, yeah. So, Jason, tell me a little bit about your background in music. How, how did you first start playing music? Uh, you know, it's funny. I started, uh, I started playing guitar, taking lessons uh, at about eight years old, mm. and about two months after I started taking lessons, my uh, teacher moved to Amarillo so I kind of put the guitar down and then uh at 18 he moved back to town so I started taking lessons from him again and about two months later he moved away and I said you know what I'm not putting the guitar down so I just kind of taught myself and hanging around some other guys and just kind of stuck with it yeah yeah and you were in the military right yes yeah yeah yeah, uh yeah we had a little uh couple of little bands in germany we had a little band in kosovo I, uh, I can share the pictures on the facebook page with you we we there's some guys uh posted those pictures for veterans day the other day so uh i was just a little young punk kid wasn't there, wasn't there a deep purple song my woman in kosovo <laughs> yeah I think that's exactly right yeah yeah <laughs> I don't think that's really, like that song, but anyway, it's, uh, it's close enough. Actually, yeah. <laughs> probably better than whatever the original lyrics were. Yeah. So, well, Jason, we're, we're glad you're here uh, today. We're we're talking about Bruce Springsteen's album from 1982, Nebraska. Uh, now, before we get started, I want to take a quick show of hands. Those of you at home, I will uh, uh, I will give you a play by play. If you would please raise your hand between the three of us. Who here is a Bruce Springsteen fan? Folks, no one raised their hand. <laughs> I, I was actually, uh, I was a little, I was surprised when you picked the album because this is literally a uh, artist we've probably never had a conversation about never, ever in ever. all the musical <laughs> conversations we've ever had. Um, I don't think I've probably ever talked with either one of you about Bruce Springsteen. No, I've, I've never been a big fan. Uh, 
Well, and I think part of that for me anyway is I've always associated Bruce Springsteen with the uh, denim jacket, early 80s, saxophone solos, Courtney Cox in the front row of the video, kind of cheese fest um, um, kind of thing. It, it just never it never resonated with me at all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, his, his mad energy where he was, you know, just on stage and somehow he's from the boardwalk of New Jersey, but he sounds like he's from, like, Kentucky. I, yeah, never, how, how I never, does that work? It's, <laughs> never understood that. It's a me. wacky affectation. Or maybe that's, just how, maybe that's just how it came about naturally when he picked up the guitar and started singing. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. maybe so. Uh, but, you know, I had born in the USA when I was a kid, mm-hmm. uh, and I listened to that tape backwards and forwards. But again, in 1984, I thought born in the USA was rah, 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 America. Right. But it's not. Which is it? not at all. Yeah, not even it's remotely. Not. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's Heartland Rock. That's the style of rock that he was doing. So um, he, he was he was kind of big at the with the John John Cougar Mellencamp's of yeah. the world, and you know that kind of I don't uh, know, resurgence John, music. You know? I think John Cougar Mellencamp. Wait, John Cougar Mellencamp. It's either John Mellencamp or John Cougar. We're not sure which one. <laughs> uh, but regardless, I think that he probably took a lot of his inspiration from Bruce Springsteen. Would you yeah, say that? Yeah, it's entirely possible. I mean, that was definitely the uh, the Americana yeah. farm aid type of you know time time period right. in the 80s when yeah. we're getting away from the glitz and the glamour and the denim jackets made sense sure sure uh, so the the way that we do our albums here our favorite albums is one of us will pick uh the album uh the other person will get to pick the next time this is one of mine so gentlemen if none of us are Bruce springsteen fans why do we pick this one what's so different about this album when we listen to it that that we would want to feature this on our favorite albums well, the, the answer is, this is a fucking great album. You know, it, it really is. Um, I do not, like, we already established all that. This is a good album. I, mm-hmm. I actually, after we listened to it, uh, when you suggested it and I listened to it, I actually went and bought it on vinyl, which, as you know, is my, if I like something, it gets on vinyl. That's yeah. it. So this yeah. is worth listening to, even outside of the podcast. I thought it was good. Um, had you listened to this before? I yes. have. this, and, and it's funny, because I came into the office one day, and I was asking Michael, so what's the next album? And he told me nebraska and i said man that is one of my favorite albums <laughs> isn't that something yeah so how, how is it that all three of us don't like bruce springsteen but like this album it's got to be because it's just a really good album right? yeah yeah definitely yeah uh, and, and i think that we all like singer songwriter you know we we like that and, and bruce springsteen regardless if you like his style of music is one of the greatest songwriters to ever live the, the, the way that he's able to paint this tapestry the way that he's able to um I don't know, break into it. it's it's different than you know just like straight up rock and roll because I think he has some of that Buddy Holly. Mm-hmm. It, it's not doo woppy. I don't know what it is. It's like Shanana like old school rock though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like throw, yeah. kind of throwbacky. Sure, sure. Uh, but as a songwriter, I mean, this is a guy who wrote "Blinded by the Light" by Manfred Mann. Did you know that? I mean, his, his I first, did not. He wrote that. Yeah, his his first album, "Greetings from Asbury Park" in 1972. Mm-hmm. Right. I had the original song on there, and it's a coming of age story. It's about who he saw down on the boardwalk. I had no idea. Yeah, it, he he wrote that, and it sounds way different than the Manfred Mann. You know the. Uh, ripped up like a douche. You know that? The actual <laughs> lyrics are cut loose like a deuce. Right. A little deuce coop. Really? Yeah. Cut loose like a deuce. Another rudder in the night. I'm going to file that in things I didn't need to know. Yeah. <laughs> Did you know that he also wrote the song Because the Night that was a hit both for Patti Smith and for 10,000 Maniacs? I did not know that either. Did you know that he wrote the song Fire for the Pointer Systems? I did, not, did not know that yeah, either. Yeah, and so this is a guy who could write it within different genres and make it sound really good. Oddly enough, we just talked about Patti Smith because right. on the last episode, she was considered as a, uh, before uh, Sammy Hagar Oh, for a, for a Van Halen yeah. singer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so th- this is a guy who who writes these folksy ballads, the Heartland type rock. Um, it, he he 
his biggest hit in 19, I think 75 or 76 was born to run, you know, right. Just, Which like, is once again, that's that anthemic big yeah. car yeah. cars. And I mean, I think yeah. originally when we wrote that it was like 12 minutes long. <laughs> was it really? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was just ridiculously long. Uh, I mean, you think about the suites of, of, of songs that were being written sure. in the seventies, right? Seventies definitely went with a, uh, you could get away with that kind of insane length of a song. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. Um, but Jason and I were talking uh, about this because Jason and I, uh, we both love singer songwriters. We we love to talk about that kind of stuff. That's the type of music that you like. Yeah, right? absolutely. The towns of Enzant. Mm-hmm. Um, you, hell, I think we all love Larry McMurtry. Yes, right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, He's one of so, the greatest of all time. Yeah, and so when, when we start talking about a songwriter, I mean, you have to include Bruce Springsteen with the how mal wow 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 actually no that stuff aside. <laughs> um, and despite the fact that when he throws in that Glockenspiel. Uh, those bells in those songs, th- that curls my toes up. You're not a big fan of the bells. Curls <laughs> my milk completely. I, I absolutely hate that glockenspiel well, well, sound. And on the songwriter thing, um, and, and maybe you guys feel the same way about this, but I didn't really think about what a good songwriter he was until I listened to Nebraska because the rest, everything I've ever heard from him before is so lost in the the pageantry of the 80s working man denim saxophone so everything i just mentioned before right yeah. so yeah. it kind of comes on the radio we all grew up with it being on the radio all the time um but you just kind of ignore it and you don't listen to it when you're when you're subjected to a guy that's just sitting in a room with an acoustic guitar there's you're either a good songwriter or you're not because right. you're yeah. not pa- right. you're not painting over that with anything right <laughs> that's, yeah. that's right and, and you think about the songs that he had up to this point you know the prove it all night prove it all you know that just this bar rock where you've got 15 guys in a band and there's a saxophone. And by the way, the saxophone's another one that just wears me completely out. <laughs> the uh, the saxophone solo in rock and roll is very rarely done <laughs> in a way that I appreciate. Yeah. It's it's almost never done in a way I appreciate. I, th- I think the war on drugs can pull that off occasionally in the horn section, and it's okay. But sure. short of that, I'm not, I'm not a fan. Well, and I remember as a kid, remember that Jerry Rafferty song that, um, oh, what was that? Remember that? Yes. Uh, oh, what is that? Second Street or whatever it is. Yeah. I remember as a kid thinking that saxophone's cool, but once you've listened to that song a couple times, you're like, man, you need to back off from that saxophone. Just <laughs> well, I think I was like getting paid by the note or something. What's going on here? When I think about sax, I guess solos in rock, I think about the the Bob Seger. You know, that's, that's another the first one, yeah. one that comes to mind. And, and Turn like the you page. said, the first time you hear it, man, that's pretty cool. But then you're like, golly, he's just me out. Will it ever end? <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about that saxophone real quick. Uh, the saxophone uh, in the E Street Band, which was Bruce's Clarence. Uh, his band. That's the big man. That's Clarence Clemens. And he was a great big fella. Right. Uh, and he owned one portion of the stage. And it seems like he was on every single song. And maybe that's one of the things I just can't stand. You know, just back off on that. Right. Uh, his uh, his piano player was a guy by the name of Danny Federici. And he played the piano and he played that glockenspiel. <laughs> and the glockenspiel, again, those bells that you hear, those little ching, chiming bells, just ping back there kind of playing. I hate that. There's not a lot of uh, album credits that have glockenspiel listed in them. Yeah, it's an I, don't, un- I don't see it very often. It's an underutilized <laughs> instrument, I guess. Uh, Gary Talent played the bass. Uh, I think he's actually a pretty solid bass player uh, from yeah. everything I listen to. Uh, there's a guy by the name of, of Roy Bittan or Bitten who also played some sort of keyboard, and so he was like overly keyboarded in this band. Uh, and then we're going to talk about the biggest ass whip in music 
ever, and that's Max Weinberg. That that guy just wears me out. But what's actually kind of cool is I've seen some interviews with Max Weinberg. He seems like a pretty cool guy. Sure. You know, uh, he was the band leader on um, Conan O'Brien's show, just so oh, you wow. know. Yeah, that's that guy. Right. That that's smiling right. guy. Back yeah, there that's the right. That's right. Uh, that's right. Really cool guy. He just kind of wears me out. I don't know what it is. Uh, but I can tell you that there is one guy from the E Street Band that I'm a huge fan of, and that's his guitar player. That wouldn't happen to have anything to do with him also being involved in your favorite TV show ever, would it? It has 100% to do with the fact that little Steven Van Zant, little Stevie, was uh, played. Uh, uh, he played Silvio Dante in The Sopranos, you know, uh, which is one of my favorite characters of all time. And of course, I love The Sopranos anyway. But uh, the fact that he played Are you a Sopranos that, fan, I'm not, and I actually just found out that he uh, that he was in that. Uh, while research, I was actually looking to see if he were was related to Towns Van Zant. Anyways, not, you know, not, but but I didn't find same that. last name, but a remarkably different right. Geolo- right. geographical uh, situation. Yeah, th- yeah, there's a director, the guy that did um, uh, uh, what is it? There, there's a, there's a Van Zant who's a director, right? And I think he's a cousin. I can't remember which. It's not less than zero. It's um. Well, if you're I'll think of it a second. for the folks playing at home, um, if you're a fan of Stephen Van Zandt, much like Michael and I are, um, get on Netflix and watch the show Lilyhammer, which is literally so Stephen awesome. Van Zandt's character from The Sopranos. It's like they Silvio take this, Dante, they yes. take this New Jersey mobster and put him in witness protection program in Lilyhammer. <laughs> Just drop him into the middle of these poor people that have no idea what's coming at them and that he proceeds to go full New Jersey on the very nice Norwegian people. It's a really funny series. It really is. Um, And so if if you're a Sopranos fan and you want to know what happened to Silvio Dante after the Sopranos, you know, he got a chance to cash one more check. He went to Lilyhammer because he liked the Olympics. He liked the Olympics. Yeah. When they put him in witness protection, he was like, well, I enjoyed that place. We should go over there. So here we are. We're talking about a guy that we don't really care for that much. We all, uh, acknowledge the fact that he's a hell of an artist. Sure. Uh, we just don't care for his music. So why are we doing this? Well, let's just talk about leading up to 1981. Uh, Bruce Springsteen was a huge, huge act. Let me run through his uh, through his discography up to that point. 19, I said 1972 earlier. It was actually 1973 with Greetings from Asbury Park. That album went to, 19, uh, it went to the number 60 uh, album that year. It ended up selling... It's, Platinum twice. Okay. So, you know, this is an album that sold a bunch. Uh, his follow-up was The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle. Did about the same. 2X Platinum went to number 59. About the same. But Born to Run in 1975, that went to number three. It was a big suddenly, one. Bruce Springsteen is a superstar, right? He's everywhere. Uh, that that style of rock, you know, you had David Bowie and you had like this glam rock, but you also had this, you know, boardwalk kind of blue-collar uh, it's 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 rootsy Americana at the time, right? Like yeah, I said well, earlier. Well, I don't know if it's, it's even that rootsy at that point. It was just, it was just big. You know, it was just rock and roll. You okay, know? well, it's rootsy now. You're right. Yeah, but it, yeah. Then it was it was new then. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it was girls, and it was cars, and it was guitars, yeah. and it was having fun and and whatever. Well, he followed that up with Darkness on the Edge of Town in 1978, and that went to number five, three X platinum. So Born to Run is six X platinum. So which means it sold six million records. Yeah, right. Uh, so then he goes to Darkness on the Edge of Town, and he follows that up with his album, The River. Now then. Was that was that the double album? 
Uh, yeah. Okay. That's the double album. Came out in 1980, and that went to number one overall in the charts. And they toured on that for up until right before. I mean, they, they played like 140 shows in two years or yeah. something insane, like a year and a half. I mean, it was just an insane amount of playing. Yeah, they were a bar band. They did a lot of singing. They did a lot of moving around. And these guys suddenly were superstars, right? Well, now they're playing 140 shows all over the world. I mean, they're, they're massive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he played at the Super Bowl. Yeah, you know? was, he, he was... It was legitimately a big deal at this point. So if uh, if The River came out in 1980, and that was the number one album, uh, I'm going to skip the album that we're doing, which is Nebraska, that was released in 1982. Uh, and I'm going to go to his follow-up for that, which was Born in the USA, and that is his biggest album of all time. Right. That, that one not only went to number one, it is Diamond. That's 15 times platinum. That's insane. Crazy, right? Wow. Yeah, and what was that album all about? What was born in the USA? It, it it's not jingoistic rah rah patriot stuff. It's, no, it's it's Vietnam veterans. It's telling the kind of the backside, kind of that Correct. deer hunter type. Uh, that, that, that's a, that's a good way to look at it, actually. Yeah, born in the USA, deer hunter. I mean, it's that kind of uh, that view of America that it's it's not this fantastic thing for everybody. That it's actually this. It's, it can be bad. Yeah, and, and there, there's some bad things going. And on. It, it's so ironic that that song is always played at these big patriotic events. And yeah, right. it's like. like Every time I hear that, I'm like, man, do these people, do they listen to the lyrics? Have you listened to the lyrics? <laughs> right? so. I mean, he even says, I'm born down in a dead man's town. Yeah. You know, he's from nowhere, and now he's trying to figure out how he's going to get paid, you know, go to the docks or whatever. Well, I mean, it's your point. There's multiple, like, president, I, I think Reagan, I think, got a mm -hmm. cease and desist order for trying to play it in his campaign. It's happened, you know, so. politicians over and over and over again. Um, because the average person... As, as we all know from being so into music, doesn't bother to listen to lyrics right. half of the time, right? I mean, yeah. it's got a catchy hook, and you just kind of run along with it. Well, hey, I, like, I was born in the USA, born in the USA, here we go, you know? Right. No, nobody's paying any attention to it. And the brilliance of his songwriting is the fact that he would write this these songs, an entire album full of songs. Uh, he would write these songs that would seem like they're just kind of good times rock and roll and, and rah-rah America, but they weren't. You know, <laughs> once you look inside of it, that's how good the songwriting is. I mean, th that's the ultimate... Uh, how do I want to phrase this? That's the ultimate way to kind of, uh, you're kind of mind-fucking your fans a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you totally are. Because you got this big, singy, happy, anthemic thing, and the lyrics actually don't, and we've talked about that before with other artists that we've done on this. You know, for, for the, ability, the ability to take something that is not positive and make it into a catchy anthem is pretty, pretty incredible. Right. You know, I guess on that, note it's kind of i mean it's it's kind of it kind of follows the folks folksy uh style of nebraska mm -hmm. as far as the political view oh, that's a good point you know, yeah. and yeah. i mean it's a completely different sound but but it kind of follows that same, same well line. and a lot of the songs off that were written in these sessions right which you're going to come back to i'm sure but. perfect segue let's talk about that and so uh the way that this album nebraska was written was typically up to this point uh the albums that they had written uh, the way Bruce writes is he comes up with the title of the song first. And then after that, he will uh, start writing in and filling in the songs and kind of filling in the rest of uh, of the story that he's telling. Like bring the band in and start fleshing the thing yeah, out. Yeah. yeah, but they would do it literally while they were in the recording studios. And so right. you're talking about weeks and weeks and weeks of like, all right, Phyllis, what are we going to play? Like, well, Clarence, you know, like, why don't you play something and listen to what it sounds like and maybe we can get some ideas from this idea. Sure. He decided he got his roadie his guitar roadie, a guy by the name of Mike Batlin, to, uh, he said, hey, Mary, go out. I don't know if he talks like that. Or not, <laughs> um, <laughs> he told him to go out and get him uh, some recording equipment so he could keep it at the house. 
uh, because he just wanted to write some songs and have them in the can and do these demos that he could record and then take them the next time they were meeting. Now, keep in mind, they had gone five, three, and number one overall in the charts. And so these guys were very accomplished musicians, right? Sure. Uh, but, but I think that's arduous. Uh, he had a quote uh, that I saw where he said that he has been measuring the distance between the American dream and the American reality. And, and I think that is so stark compared to what most people think about with Bruce Springsteen, which is this, you know, four hour long concert that right. you know, kicking mm-hmm. ass and, you know, everybody's smiling and leaning into each other's bikes and whatever. But that's well, different. This well, is a guy who's troubled, right? Well, one is, and, and, and think about the, uh, yeah, and this is the same theme here, but think about the time period, right? We were all kids when this was going on. But yeah. if you yeah, think about Well, Jason and I are the same age. You're a year yeah, older there than you us. Go. Uh, we, we were in kindergarten in 1982 when this, when this album came there out. There you go. Mm-hmm. So think about the early 80s. Um, and so you've got, um, you know, factories shutting down. There's a huge amount of competition all over the world. We've got the farm situation, which, you know, uh, the guy we were talking about earlier, Mellencamp, like his you know, greatest album up till then was the Scarecrow album, which was all about middle America. And then we had yeah. you know, Willie Nelson and these guys put Farm Aid together. So there's a very like polar opposite thing with all this this bad stuff that's going on, like the Rust Belt and the Farm Belt and all these rural areas are getting hammered. Yeah. And then at the same time, you've got Wall Street and Hollywood going on on the coast. So there's this dichotomy that he's talking about. You know, totally, this, totally. America's two different things at this point, two different people. Mm-hmm. depends on yeah. what situation you're in. Well, in the excess 80s, you know, the big hair and the hair metal and all that stuff. Yeah, that, you got people losing their farms in Indiana, and then you got guys spending $10,000 on Coke right. <laughs> for the weekends, <laughs> right, right. you know, in New York. So it's it's a very different thing. Yeah, and, and we just we just mentioned McMurtry. Mm-hmm. McMurtry came from this, right? right. He writes about that kind of stuff, too. Yeah. Yeah. This this is Heartland Rock. This, mm-hmm. is, this is someone who's talking about what it's like out here in the real world. Right. You know, outside of the cities, of the big cities, this is out, what it's like. Out here in the middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. out here in the that's yeah, one of, yeah. That's one of Bertrand's songs, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, what was going on with Bruce at this time is uh, he and his dad had kind of a, a weird relationship. His dad suffered from depression, and he was suffering from depression. You know, you, you never uh, buy your way into happiness. As, as being being rich does not make you immune to that. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and so he was dealing with some of the depression, so he wanted to write some folk songs about real life, about real people. Uh, he saw a movie called Badlands, and it's about a guy by the name of Carl Starkweather. <laughs> and Carl Starkweather was he, he was he was a, a he killer. Was, he, he was a yeah he was a one of the uh, Midwest's early serial killers, mass murderers, if you will. Yeah, you know, yeah. but uh, kind of from that same period we were talking about earlier with the uh, Truman Capotes uh, in Cold Blood. You know, that same kind of. Like just real darkness, but it was in the fifties, yeah, late fifties, and I mean, this kind of stuff, yeah, this kind of stuff didn't happen, right, right, especially yeah. not in Nebraska, yeah. Somebody didn't kill twelve people in Nebraska, <laughs> you know. Well, and you were telling me the story that you that you had read about the actual person that that really spawned this this whole concept, this Carl Starkweather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, this guy's this guy's a real guy, and uh, he had all sorts of problems, and uh, as a lot of people who end up causing a lot of trouble do. Uh, when he was 18, he started dating, uh, I forget what the girl was, but she's the girl in the song that went on the killing I think period. her name is Carol. Okay, you could be right about that. I don't. But it's spelled weird, it's like C-O-R-I-L. Like Car- you might Carol be right, okay. Like and, yeah, you see, he was an 18-year-old uh, kid who uh, killed a uh, convenience store clerk because he got mad at him. 
and then after he killed him, he took the the 14-year-old girl that he was dating, he went to go pick her up, and uh, her stepfather and mother were uh, not going to let her go, so he killed them, (laughs) and then the two-year-old child, and like buried them and hid them in the back of the house, and then he grabbed the 14-year-old girl, and they went on a killing spree, I think they killed eight. He killed eight more people, seven more people, something like that. Well, the song lyrics. Before they got him, yeah. Yeah, we're talking about the song Nebraska. Which is the lead track off this, yeah, and the title track as well. Yeah, he he says, uh, the the song lyrics go, I saw her standing in the front lawn twirling her baton. Me and her went for a ride, sir, and ten innocent people died. And so he tells you right there. I I think they got him for 11, but they, actually, I think he got on, I think he, I think he was executed for one. I think they just tried and got him for the well, one. The, yeah. the one around. was before her. So they yeah, yeah, that, that was the convenience store clerk, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, they, so there you go. That's 10 together in the song. That makes yeah. sense. And so he did this in 1981. He he patterned it after um, kind of a dystopian view of, of the world, which is way different than what you'd expect from Bruce Springsteen. Well, if, it's kind if, of a dystopian view of that heartland America that we're talking yeah, about, I think, yeah. more than anything But else, it's right? real. But it's yeah, real, yeah, yeah. Right. And by the way, if... Well, it, this, this was definitely real. This happened. Yeah. And if that story sounds familiar... By the way, that story was also what the movie "A Natural Born Killers" was based on. Really? Was this exact same story? Gotcha. Yeah, of, of older these, guy, younger lover of them, murder of, spree, of, right? Of Carl Starkweather. Gotcha. Uh, the song "Nebraska," by the way, which uh, the title track uh, again from the movie "Badlands" by Terrence Malick was originally titled "Starkweather," and so that's actually what it was called. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I highlight that song, and we'll get back to it. Uh, but Bruce wanted to write some songs about real, not not film noir, but true crime, right? Right, and he wanted to write what it's like out here in the heartland, the the Rust Belt that you talk about, right? You know, from from Pittsburgh all the way out to Wyoming, yes. you know, just people who are out here just starving to death, uh, people who had come back from Vietnam that fought for the country, and right. suddenly they were kind of thrown back into the country and. You know, they, they were spit upon and called baby killers and stuff. And then they had to go out and take a GI Bill. And then the farm right. I mean, just kind of fell apart. And what's interesting is right after this, Stephen Van Zant left the band after Born in the USA. To do? To do Live Aid. Yeah. Yeah. Or was it Farm Aid or Live Aid that he did? I think he did Live Aid. Okay. But yeah, but Farm Aid came about I, shortly thereafter thing, that I, as well. I think Farm Aid was the Willie Nelson response to Live Aid. Right. right? I think you're right. Yeah. yeah Live Aid was, uh, that was the uh, the African, the... Yeah. Charity for Africa. Yeah. 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 Uh, so Bruce asked Mike Batlin to find him a cassette recorder and to set up in his home. And he had a spare bedroom. Uh, by the way, that was in Colt Neck, I believe, Colt Neck, New Jersey. It was on a reservoir. And so it was like his little lake house. He was kind of suffering some depression. And so he just wanted to have. So we're having recording yeah, stuff. Just yeah. recording. I mean, just like we're doing now. I mean, we're we're on consumer grade electronics here. Um, <laughs> can you can you just imagine for a second? And uh, so so there's just for those of you at home, there's three of us sitting around a table. We've got some really nice microphones. We've got a great board, um, and this is all stuff that you can order online. Yeah. Now, um, and it's not like we spent a fortune on this. I mean, every anybody can go get this stuff and put it in their house now. Home recording equipment. Used to be insanely expensive. It was yeah. hard to use. Nobody had the tools for it. I mean, it's kind of a big deal to think that a guy was just going to sit around his house and record. I mean, that was mm-hmm. kind of reserved for rock stars, right? Totally, right. rich totally. guys. Well, and it, definitely the guy who was who was a Columbia Records number one seller. Right, of, he could afford I mean? that kind of stuff, but there weren't a lot of kids. Yeah, just or just like stuff. amateurs doing what we're doing, basically. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's funny how much that's that's changed. We're talking about this guy getting this little tape recorder to. To kick out this incredible album, just imagine what he could have done 
just with the equipment in this room. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Totally. So he uh, he had his roadie go out and find him a TAC Tascom Porta Studio 144, which is a four track mixer. Uh, what I have here in front of us is actually an eight track mixer. And mine is digital. Uh, his his actually, was not. <laughs> his recorded to a cassette tape. And I, I don't mean like a cassette tape like recording equipment. I mean a cassette tape like we used to have in our like a, our, a tape player, right? So, kids, uh, for those of you listening at home, a cassette was this thing that we used to have music on. <laughs> and you would uh, put it in your car and you could listen to music while you drove. And then you would take it out and put it at home. Yeah, it's one and, of those And things. always make sure you carried a pencil. Yeah, because you, 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 yeah, you have to wind it yeah. back up because they would inevitably get <laughs> right. stuck. Yeah. Uh, he got him uh, some Shure SM57 microphones. Uh, we, Which are we've, still... We've all performed and sung on stage. On Shure's, yeah. We, we've all sung on a Shure microphone. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just kind of the standard. Uh, he was using a Gibson Echoplex tape echo machine. And you'll notice on these songs, there's like a hollow echo sound. And that's that, that, that does reverb. provide the ambiance to yeah. all of these recordings. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and... He actually did a mix down because what he would do is he would record through this thing, uh, mix down a couple of different layers and go back and kind of put some effects and stuff on it. And he was using a Panasonic boombox that he had in a boat that he was paddling on this little reservoir that fell into the water and he fished it back out and it didn't work. And then suddenly it started working again. And so he used that as his mix down tape machine. This is not a complicated piece of equipment and we were talking about i have a note here that his his tiac tape recorder he used costs a thousand dollars and a thousand fifty dollars how in the hell is it that he could drop a tape deck in a lake and fish it back out and record an album with it my son can jump in the pool with an iphone and i gotta buy a new one i mean we're 40 years in the future can i can we not waterproof these things what's going on here for the holidays uh, <laughs> for the holidays in 1981 uh, starting on December 17th, he started recording some of these songs just as demos because he wanted to have these ideas that he could take to his band and say, guys, this is a song that I wrote. And he wrote 17 total songs, 15 of which were completely finished on one magical night on January 3rd, 1982. And again, it was done in his home studio, sparse. It's it's very much just him and a guitar. Right. And then he goes back and adds in that glockenspiel or adds in his, his harmonica. Uh, I, I made notes on when we go through the songs here, by the way, uh, what instruments are here. The difference in this is the E Street Band was this massive band. And on this album, there's one dude doing everything. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Which is weird. It's just it's just weird that he would do this. And most people don't get it. Um, I have my, my buddy Tom, when I told him I was doing this, he says Atlantic City is one of my favorite songs. Atlantic City was the only track from this entire album. That was a single, album. right? That was included in his greatest hits album. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Not, yeah. It wasn't a single, but it was included. I mean, and that's when I started listening to this album. When you first suggested it, listen through it, and Atlantic City came on. I was like, I know I've heard this before. <laughs> Why have I heard this before? Yeah. Well, because he's re-recorded it. It's been on best of albums. It's uh, he used to. T- the, the, it was I think probably the only song I've heard the band would tour with, or one of the only ones you know, they would actually play occasionally when they were live. Mm-hmm. But you've heard Atlantic City obviously yeah. before oh, yeah. you listen to the album, right? Okay. Atlantic City has become one of his concert staples. Yeah, it's uh, a big one. Yeah, and uh, I think I saw that. Like the number of times that they played this song is like outpaces just about every other song that he's ever had in his catalog outside of the hits. 
Well, it's a really, really great song. It's a hell of a good song. Uh, these we'll talk are, about some more when we get to it, but yeah, it's a great song. These are songs about down-and-out criminals. These are songs about people who can't find jobs, they can't get work at the dock, they don't have any money, and they want to break out. They're looking for their baby, and everybody wants to please their baby, right? <laughs> sure, Come absolutely. Here, baby, let's baby me and you run off. Maybe go get us a, uh, go get us, buy us an RV. Right. And uh, <laughs> let's just tour the countryside, right? But with this, he's talking about guys who are going to go do a job for the mafia, and collect that money, and then they're going to take off and head to the heartland. They're going to head to Nebraska. Absolutely, yeah. these are not a these are not a happy ending stories they're, they're as not, a general rule. Yeah. They're they're dim. They're dark. Uh, some of it's biographical. You know, he, there, there's a song in here where he's talking about uh, uh, his father's house or the mansion on the hill. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that was ha- that was the house that his dad liked to walk by and look at. Evidently, yeah. or the song "Used Cars," where he talks about his dad getting a used car and how he says, "Someday I'm going to get there, and I'm never going to have to drive." I won't have car, to do this right? again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, r- real quick, correct me if I'm wrong. This album was not. Um, well, I mean, obviously, this wasn't even a big deal when it came out, right? I mean. Isn't this an album that's gotten better as it goes? I mean, more popular and more widely received as it goes? This album went to number three in the charts. In 82? In 1982, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, What he did was he he had these demos that he carried. When he finished these demos, uh, he carried this tape around him in in his uh, jean jacket. Right. (laughs) Of course. course. (laughs) Uh, And he was... uh, Obviously, From time to time, he'd pull it out. He'd say, you know, what can we do with this? What can we do with that? Uh, And his whole idea was to bring the E Street Band together. And put this together. And do right? the, thing, the whole thing. Yeah. So in April 1982, he gets the E Street Band together. Uh, they start working on some of these songs, and he plays them. And the band is just like, what do we do with this? Like, we can't play these songs. Well, I mean, if you listen to what they played before, how, I mean, if you're uh, you're Stephen Van Zandt sitting there looking for when you're going to get to play your guitar part, there's <laughs> there's not a lot there, right? Yeah. I mean, the, it's really not. The song State Trooper is talking about a guy who's, who, who's driving at night, and there's a cop behind him, and he's saying... Don't pull me over because I don't want to have to kill you. You know mm-hmm. how, how is Clarence Clemens going to put a sax solo <laughs> to that? Well, it would be a very slow and depressing. <laughs> Throw a Glockenspiel over that. So they they recorded some of these albums or some of these songs. Uh, and this session was called the Electric Nebraska Recordings. And the band just didn't like them, and uh, Bruce didn't like them. However, did you know eight of the songs that they tried to adapt ended up on Born to Run. I, I'm sorry, born, born in the born USA, in the USA. Yeah. and there was one extra called Pink Cadillac that ended up on the album after that. Really, so, Pink yeah. Cadillac came out. He wrote that, and yeah, this, wow. this was all part of that. Yeah, five of the songs weren't even attempted. They listened to it. And like, There's no way we can do this. <laughs> we're not doing this. Nine of the songs that they were recorded are still in the vault, and never released. Nobody's released them. There's some bootlegs that they've heard. Um, well, the reason I, the reason I ask you about the uh, popularity, uh, how well it was received in A2. Uh, I mean, I know now we look at it as a fantastic album, but it just doesn't sound like anything else that was released that year. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Billboard's top 10 for 82, the first, Lord have mercy, the first eight things on here just read like a who's who of things I don't want to listen to. <laughs> right? I mean, what is it? What, 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 was, uh, what was popular in 1982? Okay, so Billboard's top 10 albums for 82, the number one album was Asia. The number two album was... Wait, 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 wait. Asia, Asia. Okay. Go-Go's. Okay. Foreigner. The Jake Isles Band. That would be Centerfold. Uh, freeze Frame, yeah. Freeze Frame, okay, yeah. Uh, Journey. Escape. Lover Boy. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, it hurts me to say that. Stevie Nicks. Uh, Vangelis, which is the soundtrack to Chariots of Fire, somehow made it into the <laughs> Are top you ten. Me? No, I'm not. Oh, God, my parents watched that movie. I could, I could hear that playing in my head. Did they buy the tape, though? Oh, my dad had it on vinyl at one point, I'm sure. 
What a boring movie. Oh, it's, yeah. Hey, we're going to make a movie about two guys running. Oh, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> In all fairness, probably better than half the movies that were made last year. But anyway. <laughs> um, and then The Police had an album, a great album, Ghost of the Machine, and The Rolling yeah. Stones had Tattoo You. So there's a, okay. there a couple good albums that okay. year. But for the most part, there's nothing on there. Actually, none of those albums sound anything like this album, is my point, right? I, I this is not... It's not like this is Jason Isbell releasing an acoustic album and he's going to get a Grammy nom for yeah. when there's a bunch of other guys doing acoustic singer-songwriter stuff. This is not happening yeah. on pop radio back then. Yeah, and, and we were kind of in a transition period anyway. Um, Jason, what, what kind of music did you listen to growing up? Well, it's funny because the very first album I bought was Van Halen, 1983. So, <laughs> 84. 84, sorry. I knew that. Uh, you had the pre-release. And, and it's funny because I think you mentioned it in the last episode. Uh, I, I think I bought that because of the album cover. Just because to, of the, uh, just the, to the little cigarettes. The, the cherub smoking the cigarette. Yeah. My, my parents and grandparents. and uh, But, you know, that was probably that and whatever my mom was listening to. She was really into some terrible music at the time bob seger and right. you know, stuff like that and uh now, now hold on a second now you brought me a box of vinyl and you had some pretty cool stuff in that vinyl right yeah yeah i forgot i brought that to you yeah you did i, I still don't know have what i was in there but a, a lot of country some, stuff yeah yeah i was listening to a lot of country that's kind of what i grew up on um and as i said buddy holly you know that's what my dad <laughs> that's what my dad was listening to but but in in, in the early full 80s, circle ladies and gentlemen full yeah, circle yeah. Terrible, early, terrible song. In the early 80s, I was probably listening to mostly country and and uh, not this kind of stuff. Right. Well, you, sure. you, said, you said something interesting. You said Bob Seger, and it just made me think of something. Um, so when we grew up, there was radio stations, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody played the same stuff all over. So we had kind of have a like a shared reality, if you will, yeah. that we all grew up with the same stuff. It doesn't matter. You, know, you grew up in Princeton. You grew up in Graham. I grew up in Houston. The same artists are on the radio stations. Everywhere, yeah. regardless, and there's only a few radio stations. So you say Bob Seger, and we all go, "Okay, well, yeah, Bob right. Seger, right?" We all know this. <laughs> sure, that doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't. It doesn't. And, and let's talk about it a little real quick. That's, go ahead. Go ahead. That that whole movement was called AOR, Album Oriented Rock, and uh, from the '60s, if those if the record companies were like, "Give me another single, give me another single, turn out another single." In the 70s, it turned into we've got to have like this full huge album. Give me another album. Give yeah. me another album. Right. Yeah, and then we get to this. This thing, this whatever Nebraska ended up being, this cinematic approach to the dark, greasy side of life and death that uh, I don't know what you even call this because I, I never heard this on classic rock. Did you? No, no. And that, and you know, it's kind of what you were just talking about. If I would have heard this in 1982, I'd have probably never listened to it again. In all honesty, because sure. that's, that's just not the kind of music I listen to. So then, years later, when somebody said, "Hey, have you ever listened to the Nebraska album?" I'm like, "Yeah," and I'm now I'm good. I don't want to hear it again, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I think it's uh, yeah. I mean, it just wasn't. It was so much different. Yeah, and, and I don't I don't think you could have got. And I mean, obviously, Atlantic City became a huge hit for him. But can you imagine that the version that's on this album? being a single that was getting that kind of radio play like we're talking about like all over the place I sure mean, th th we just went through what was popular at the time i mean that's mm -hmm. a, a guy with an acoustic guitar singing a song about you know the mob and running right. off with his girl is that's not showing up on you know primetime broadcast radio that's right yeah. and, and what was happening in, ni at, at, in 1982 what else was happening it was mtv mm -hmm. right uh, uh, yeah well, which these wouldn't really fit really well in the video either right atlantic city was bruce springsteen's very first music video was it just, so? I don't remember that at all. Was, I it, don't just, was it just I, him? Or I, I don't uh, no, he, I don't think yeah, he's don't even know. in it. I, I think it's just like all black, like and a white. narrative kind of thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Pretty cool. How'd it do for him? Uh, 
not great. But I mean, he, he, so let, let's talk about because the when I think of him in video, all I can think of like I was making fun of the Courtney Cox thing earlier. You know, that was her like first thing mm-hmm. was you know the girl from Friends dancing in front <laughs> yeah. of the stage. But it's always like the big thing on stage and like the saxophone players doing the solo and everybody's dancing and having a good time. I can't imagine how you could possibly do a video for Atlantic City that fits into that time yeah. period. It, it's him and little Steven like leaning into each other and singing into the same microphone. And, exactly. You know, just jamming out on the Backs guitar. Backs to each other. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, Van Halen was great at that too. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, what happened with with Nebraska? Considered one of the greatest albums of the eighties. Uh, reached number three in the Billboard in nineteen eighty two. Certified platinum in the United States. Uh, think about the type that, that of music. Just, man, I'm, that just amazes me. That was insane. Right? That just amazes me that 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 this album could reach number three in nineteen eighty two. I mean, so it was obviously just for a month or so because it didn't make the year end like cut. But I mean, at one point it was on number three when it was out there. That's that's insane to me. Yeah, and and, and I was talking to one of my partners about um about music. Uh, one, one of my music buddies. Uh, when we were talking about the Black Crows, remember? And he goes, "Which uh, my buddy Furley?" Like, yeah, well, which which, uh, which album? <laughs> which which hit was off that album? It was like he wouldn't know any of them. And so the same thing with this is like, what hit is off this album? There's not a hit on this. The, these are fragments of songs that he was creating as demos. These were just ideas, right? Um, some of these just end. You know, they kind of fade off into the ether because they just end. Mm-hmm. And it's different than a fade out because... You know, I fact, mean, is it? I think you're, I think you're splitting hairs here. <laughs> I, I think it is because when he gave this to his engineer and he was like, can you do something with this? Because it's not working in the ne- electric Nebraska recordings. He gave it to his engineer. And that's a, that's, okay, three, that, two, I, I, see, I see you're going with that. A guy by the name of Dennis King. And they were like, we tr- we we can try to master some of the the hum and the noise and stuff. I, I, I see where you're going with that. I, yeah. I think I mean, that you might be making a fair point. I, mean, I don't know. I'll reserve judgment. Right here, we've got blankets of stuff set up to try to trap some of these echoes. Mm-hmm. He didn't even have that. He just had like a bed in his bedroom. You know? <laughs> right. I mean, just, just what is this? Um, another thing. I was talking to one of my good buds that she asked what we were doing and I said this and she was like I gotta tell you I'm not looking forward to that I'm not looking forward to Bruce Springsteen and I said you're gonna have to trust me you're just gonna have to trust me on this because this album stands out totally different from the rest of his catalog Mm -hmm. it stands out from everything else and what did this type of music inspire it inspired John Cougar Mellencamp Mm -hmm. inspired Larry McMurtry yeah Uh, Dwight Yoakam had an album that came out I think in the early aughts called Dwight Yoakam Acoustic dot net that is all acoustic Mm -hmm. right what about MTV Unplugged? Oh, yeah. I, I agree with you. I think that as remarkable... It was, so, first of all, nobody but Bruce Springsteen probably at the time, because of how popular he was, could have gotten a producer to release acoustic yeah, recordings, yeah. right? you got to have the skins on the wall to do this, right? Yeah, and you, you talked about before how many albums he'd sold up until this point. So, he they were like, eh, we'll give it a run. Why not? Yeah. You know, there's, there's no easy singles on here. There's no easy videos. But sure, why not? Nobody else could have made that happen. But he did open... I mean, this, this does open a door for the idea of somebody being able to just write a song with a guitar, and mm-hmm. here totally. we go. Totally. And, 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 and the song... And, and we, and I don't mean to interrupt no, you. I'm sorry, okay. buddy. But uh, we we all have done, especially you know, I backed both of you guys up before a lot of singers, not like a lot of country stuff. You know, when we played just acoustic guitars before. or Americana, Americana. Americana. How, how's that? Yeah. Let's just yeah. consider the whole thing. Um, how many of those guys? Th- this sounds like that. Yeah. This doesn't sound yeah. like everything else he recorded. This sounds like something you know. Any one of these songs could have been written by all those guys that we like and the songs that we played from these people, I, I right. would think, don't you? And that's how I was introduced to this album. Uh, I was 1999. Uh, I was in the Army. I had a buddy of mine named Ed that was, uh, we were doing a little acoustic gigs at, at these Irish pubs all over Germany. And uh, it's funny because I was, I, we were just 
sitting at his house one day and I started playing this song and uh, Mr. State Trooper mm-hmm. and I started playing this song and he's like man I love that album I was like really Steve Earle <laughs> so Steve Earle recorded that song I knew this song by I Steve Earle that. no kidding and and I love Steve Earle oh yeah he's, and, that's crazy and I'm like <laughs> what are you talking about Bruce Springsteen Nebraska I'm like man I don't I don't know what you're talking about this is a Steve Earle song and you know at that time I was listening to the Towns Van Zandt the guy Clark you know that kind of stuff and it was really cool. This guy was from, from Detroit, and uh, he was introducing me to some new Gear Daddies, uh, The Handsome Family, Robbie Fawkes, people like that. And I don't even know who that is. Oh, y'all got to you gotta listen to those guys. Right. I, I'll, send, I'll send you some of that stuff. But anyway, we'll, they, link that, we'll link that on the site. For yeah, absolutely. so that's the kind of stuff he was introducing me to, and it was kind of the same style but different people of what I was listening to. And he said, man, you've got to listen to the Nebraska album. I'm like, man. I'm not a Bruce Springsteen fan. I'm not not really. So one day, I just sat down and listened to it, and man, I was just blown away because it was so much like what I was listening yeah. to at that time. I'm like, is this really Bruce Springsteen? You know, and and uh, but yeah, so that's kind of how how I was introduced to this album, and uh, you know, it's just uh, yeah. I, I think I thank my buddy Ed all the time for just the different musicians that he introduced me to, but this was probably the thing that he introduced me to that I enjoyed the most. Uh, well, Hey, and that's, you, you bring up a good point just about music in general. Like the three of us have all shared a lot of music with each other over the years. And, you know, people get so caught up in their, I listen to mm-hmm. Yes. This. this is my thing. I listen to, I only listen to, I listen to this, this and that's it. And to be, first of all, to enjoy music, but also to be any kind of decent musician, you gotta be prepared to listen to everything. Yeah. You know, if somebody comes at you and goes, "Man, check this out." You know, like Nebraska. I was like, "You had a twenty-year, Jason. Yeah. You had a twenty-year head start yeah. on me on listening to Nebraska." <laughs> and yeah, you know, I was uh, going to the liquor store, which for those of us that live in this part of the world is a rather significant drive. A lot of time to listen to music on the way to the liquor store. Mm-hmm. And I had, and I had this on shuffle. And Atlantic, and I was like, yeah, it's okay, it's okay. Atlantic City comes on. I listened to it all the way there and all the way back. I was like, this is. I know I've heard this before. Why have I heard this before? This is great. It, but I would never would have turned it on if we hadn't decided if you hadn't picked it for the yeah. podcast. You know, so open your minds, people. There's some really good yeah. music out yeah, there. Yeah, the, there really is. And, and the ballad style of this, that where he's taking Bob Dylan's, you know, because Bob Dylan was, was I mean, he, that's where everything's. You can go back to that root in the early '60s of Bob Dylan doing, um, you know, the, the, the ballad style. You know, tell a story. But well, he, he was the first one to make that um, commercially mm-hmm. viable, yeah. accessible. What's the word? You know, you know what I'm talking sure, about. Sure, yeah. sure. But you can't call this folk rock, even though he's he's kind of copying. And, and 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 I wrote down the the chords on some of these. I, I think the majority of these songs are have G A mm-hmm. and D, and that's it. Right. Yeah. Uh, you might be able to play half of these songs back to back to back and never even change your chord structure. You know, so there's nothing really spectacular about the way this, this hey, stuff is written. What is it they say about country music? Three chords and the truth. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so uh, real quick, so I have this uh, re- released in September of 1982. They started after they went to the studio and realized they couldn't do anything with it. He said, well, "Can we put this out and see what it sounds like?" The record company listened to it and said, absolutely press it. It's Bruce Springsteen on vocals, guitar, harmonica, glockenspiel, tambourine. I have Hammond organ. I didn't realize there was even a Hammond organ in there. Maybe, maybe there's, there's a track with like some, there, there is a little bit of organ in the background occasionally. There, yeah. And, there, and there's one song he, he plugs in an electric guitar and plays, uh, it, it sounds like kind of a thin, tinny, kind of jangle rock type song. Um, there's some ethereal stuff floating in the background here. It strikes me as a guy that like, 
wasn't quite done with the thought process and was just going to throw some more stuff on yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's out, these are demos that he kind of put together that he wanted other people to listen to and create from it. But he realized, man, these <laughs> this this piece of music, this piece of art stands on its own. Right. Right. Uh, and it's, again, I mentioned Billie Eilish in our intro. They did that entire fancy album that was huge in, in 2019. Well, Bruce Springsteen started it. So right. the, the inspiration that he has... That he created with Nebraska lives on to this day with that whole idea of if we're stuck in our house because of COVID, no, of it's one thing, sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. but in 2019, Billy Eilish and her brother, they, they COVID wasn't going on then. They were just right. doing it well, inside their house. The, the technology has caught up to the desire to record. Like you know, he he wanted Springsteen wanted to do this. He did the best thing he could with what he had. Right, right. Yeah, you know? yeah. And uh, it just gets better and better. You know, there, there's a flip side. You know, Michael, you and I uh, make pick on all the time like the the auto tune completely <laughs> computer produced nonsense which is most of pop music in this day and age unfortunately right. but the plus side of the technology is that you can actually you know a guy can sit down and write an album yeah and kick it out and obviously springsteen was doing that a long time ago yeah but. absolutely and, and in a time when we can't leave the house uh, if you have this type of equipment that we're seeing, have some right fun here. with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I could go in. We, we've got enough guitarists here that the three of us could do an entire show. We've got we've got a couple stacks in the back that have two fifteens <laughs> on it that we can literally outplay yeah. just about any any yeah, band out here. There, there is a little bit of equipment laying around. Here, so. <laughs> yeah. but I mean, the three of us could hook up right now and do a live show out in front of the office, and it, it would be better than most live shows up until nineteen eighty two because of the sure because the equipment's gotten so much better. Right. Yeah, yeah. Do you yeah. think anybody would come? Listen, uh, or would it be I bet you somebody would show up. <laughs> City Hall's across the street, so I'm sure somebody would show up. Say, well, my, my wife better be there. That's a- <laughs> <laughs> so now you have the background of the album, how it was created, where we came to, uh, to listen to this. And now let's tune this baby up. Let's give her a spin. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to listen to these demos turned masterpiece into the album Nebraska by Bruce Springsteen. Hang tight. We'll be right back. Everybody, this is Dan Jablons from Retail Smart Guys. If you're listening to this Our Favorite Album podcast and you know Jason and Michael, then maybe you're in retail. And if you are, then you should know that my company, Retail Smart Guys, could help your company achieve better sales, greater profits, greater cash flow, and a whole lot more fun. So visit www.retailsmartguys.com or call my personal cell at 818-720-2585 and I'll tell you more about it. Attention retail store owners. Listen for yourself and your customers. RetailProDemo.com will increase your profitability and efficiency. This tailored retail management software handles your front-end point of sale, improves customer experience, streamlines store operations and back-office applications with powerful reporting and analytics. With concierge-level implementation and hands-on training, RetailPro, powered by complete data systems, will take your business to the next level. Visit RetailProDemo.com. That's RetailPro. Demo.com. For questions, comments, suggestions, or even send us a love letter. Visit us at OurFavoriteAlbums.com. You can find us on Twitter at OurFaveAlbums, 
on Facebook at Our Favorite Albums. And if you want to send us an email, send it to info at ourfavoritealbums.com. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to a Dallas radio institution, a guy by the name of DJ Easy Eddie from KNON 89.3 FM. Uh, he was one of the pioneers in hip hop uh, music and, and radio. He has one of the, the two longest uh, running hip hop radio shows in the nation. And I ran into DJ Easy Eddie when I was down the Bishop Arts. Really? And met the huh. guy. Super no nice kidding. guy. We sit there and talked about music for probably 30 minutes. And so, DJ Easy Eddie, I, I appreciate your conversation, buddy. And I want to give you a quick shout out. That's awesome, man. Yeah. yeah. Today, we're breaking down what I consider to be Bruce Springsteen's finest album, the 1982 release, Nebraska. And as our special guest, we've invited our buddy Hanks in to talk to us about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> we, we've talked a little bit about the background here. We've talked about this album, how we led up to it, and now as we get into the songs here, uh, what are the themes that we're looking at? What, what are we looking for? Well, it's it's dark for one thing. I yeah. mean, like, like we talked about in the uh, the first half of this. I mean, this is this is songs. Um, <laughs> if the uh, if the Talking Heads had their album, you know, more songs about uh, food. What was it? I mean, it's kind of still. This would be more songs about you know sad blue collar people. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. this is this is a uh, this is not good. This is bleak. This is the early eighties. Yeah. This is not for everybody. Like you talked about before, yeah, bleak. Rust Belt, and poor people. Uh, I mean, it's it, this is not a uh, happy go lucky music. Right. I, I noted that a lot of these, um, and Jason is actually a minister. Yeah. And uh, Jason plays music in his church. I noted, Jason, that a lot of these kind of sound like Southern hymns. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know? they do. And there is a uh, there's some religious themes in some of these songs. Sure, sure. Uh, it, it is, yeah, there is. That's a, that's a good point. It, it's almost like multifaceted, where he's throwing the religious out there, almost like taunting it, uh, kind of like the antithesis mm-hmm. of, of religion. Like it, instead of hope, he's using that hymn theme thematically. Uh, in a way that is kind of like the anti-hymn. Right. You know, this is the anti-hymn. It's still kind of with that whole Southern hymn sound where you could be, you know, it's, again, that's G-A-N-D. Mm-hmm. Southern hymns really aren't right, that hard. Right. Um, I mean, this this could sound like a song that's right out of a church on a Sunday, right? Sure, sure. I, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it's, uh, it has that style um, of telling, you know, telling the story and there's a moral, there's a moral behind it, if you will. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah absolutely. So as we go through, I'll, I'll make a couple notes. Uh, specifically, I'll tell you what instruments he's playing. It's going to be very, very stark, though. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's all Bruce. Uh, it's all. Yeah, this, this is kind of funny because we're kind of on this album. We're out of my normal, like one of like my normal, the things that I like to talk about, which yeah. is, okay, so here we're listening to this is the bass and this is the guitar and this is the drums <laughs> and this is the stuff that I'm as a guitar player super excited about. There's not any of that in right. this. I mean, we're really, we're literally stripped down to the bare essence of the song plus the occasional glockenspiel. <clears throat> you <Well>. know, <laughs> <laughs> the occasional bells. The occasional, uh, Jason, I would, I would um, counter that, that I think this may be more your style than you even realize. Because how many times do you walk through this office and with a guitar working out a song? Oh, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what this is. He was working these songs out. These were not meant to be finished products. Right. He was working on. He was workshopping these songs, and they turned out to be uh, altogether one piece of art. Right. right? Yeah. But, I mean, but he was just kind of working on stuff. Yeah. Right? No, that, that's a fair point. That's well, a fair and, point. And you're you're the one that introduced me to James McMurtry, and I mean this. 
like we said earlier, I mean, this has so much of a James McMurtry feel to it. Did, did I really introduce yeah. you to James McMurtry? Yeah, you did. Oh. I, knew, oh, man. I knew Larry, look, but I didn't know who James was. Look at me. Yeah. And, and, uh, <laughs> we, so, we used to play one. What was the McMurtry song we played? Um, Stan Cliff's Lament. Stan Cliff's Lament. Yeah. And I just listened to that the other day. thought, man, I haven't heard that in a long time. But but that's So this album is one of those that if you're not a... If you're not a fan of the lyrics, you're probably not going to like the album. Yeah, you, you've got to go deep into the lyrics. Yeah. I, I always say I love melody, but with this, you've got to listen really, really hard with what's happening here. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff happening past all of his instrumentation, which is stark, past all of his, um, you know, the, the fact that it sounds like something Southern, and he sings with this, this Southern accent, which is, again, weird for a guy from New Jersey. <laughs> right. Um, this is a guy who's telling a story, and you better listen to these stories. This is a stripped-down uh, singer-songwriter just about as you could possibly get. And even as much as, like, McMurtry, mm-hmm. um, his albums very – and I've seen him play acoustic before, and he's he does a great job. But his albums tend to have more production value and backing band and everything else. And so this you – know, he doesn't release a lot of albums. It's just right. ten songs of him and a guitar. Well, this – I mean, this is absolutely up my alley because I love those – yeah, right. I mean, this, I mean, Todd this, Snyder's one of my favorite. Oh, yeah. His, his yeah. best shows are just him and a guitar. Yeah. Well, and, and when we were talking about this, uh, we were we were saying if we're going to bring in Hanks for, you know, our, our idea when we started putting this together was at some point we're going to have our buddies, our music buddies come in and talk to us uh, when we do this. Uh, and the reason we want to have you first is... This is a singer-songwriter album. This, this is right up right, your alley. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is Jason Hanks, man. Yeah. This is this is right up his alley. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska Starts Off With the Title Track. And so, once again, this is the uh, the song about the This murders. is a song about, yeah, Carl Starkweather. And Carol Ann Fugate was her name. Carol Ann, that's right. Yeah. But you're right, it's spelled with an I. It's a little different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, harmonica and guitar. There's going to be the glockenspiel of little bells. This is played in G, A, and D. So much <laughs> reverb. <laughs> That's the thing that always strikes me with this, and once again with the Echoplex and everything, but there's so much reverb on there. You know, it's cool because if I'm not listening to you guys, I'm usually listening to true crime podcasts. But I've never heard of Starkweather, so I'm going to have to go. I'm sure there's some podcast on him. I'm well, there's two movies about him. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure there'd be something. Yeah. There's, there's Badlands and there's the um, Natural Born Killers. Yeah, so he just said right there, from the town of Lincoln, Nebraska, I took the gun in my lap, and I went through the Badlands of Wyoming. So He has a, he has a sawed-off 410. That's not a very powerful gun. No. I don't know why you'd have to saw it off. But, but once again, we're talking about the late 50s here. You know, it, law enforcement wasn't... 58? Yeah, everybody wasn't militarized like they are right. now, you know. So at 410, you could probably get away with a lot. I, I keep saying Carl. It's Charles Starkweather, not and Carl. Schmidt. Yeah. 11 people over an eight-day period in 1958 yeah. is when this happened. And he was executed. And here's the other thing. Yeah, they gave him the chair. He tells about the execution. He well, here, describes it, the execution. And, and real quick, the, this line right here, he said, at least for a while, sir. It's coming, this line right here, hold on a second. So that line, he said, for a little while we had some fun. That is from the letter 
he wrote to his parents right before he was executed. He didn't have any last words, but he sent his parents a little like four-line letter mm. right before they executed him. And he said, at least for a little while, her and I had some fun. And wow. that was it. Right. Really? Yeah. So have either of y'all tried to play along with this? Yeah. So I, 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 I could never figure out the, the key. And and I've I've you know through, through some research I found out his guitar was actually out of tune. Yeah, <laughs> while he played this song, yeah, it, so it, it, it was. Yeah, yeah. And again, that goes to you know, he wasn't trying to create an album here. He was just trying right. to put some ideas down. But there's nothing more frustrating than when you're trying to learn a song. Right. Just, right. God yeah. damn it, this ought to be G. I know yeah. it's good. Well, it's like a quarter note flat. Yeah, that'll throw you off Listen, every time. There's, there's a clock and spiel. Yeah, I just heard the bell. Yeah, here at the back there. He actually said they uh, snapped his poor head back, but I think they gave him the chair, if I remember correctly. Well, it does snap. It, the electricity snaps mm-hmm. your head Ah, uh, right? gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And, and he says that he... When he pulls make, the switch. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Make sure my pretty baby's on my lap. That was... Uh, he requested to have her picture. Oh, wow. Ah, okay. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. She got 17 years. She didn't get the chair. She got 17 years, and they let her go. Of course, she was 14 at the time, right. so... The way he writes this, they declare me unfit to live... Said in that gray void, my soul be hurled. Wow. I mean, that's mm. that's such poetic. It is. Really, really brilliant writing. He said they could have said they determined I needed to die and I was going to go to hell, but that's right. the way he wrote that was way <laughs> more poetic. There's just a meanness in the world. That's that's why he did it. Why did I do this? It was just a meanness in the world. Meanness in the world. I mean, that's that's so different. Mm-hmm. That's so different from going to run and... And so once again, we were talking about this in, in the intro, um, but now we're, we're through the first song. You can understand probably why the E Street Band listened to this and went, what are we- the hell do you want me to do with this? And they were probably thinking, man, what is going on with this? Because really, The River, before this, was a darker album yeah, than sure, what he sure, had done sure. before. And he just took that darkness and went even it darker. It went dark, yeah. <laughs> well, he, was, he was depressed. And right. He, you know, and he was alone in this, in this lake house. This is uh, Atlantic City. Okay, so this we talked about this earlier. This is such a great song. And the chicken man that he just referenced right there, that is Philip Testa, who was the Don of Philadelphia. He was the mafia boss in Philadelphia, and they blew up his house. There was a bomb underneath his uh, front step. Really? Yeah. And he was called the chicken man, so there you go. Well, he says, we're going to see what them racket boys can do. He's talking yeah. about the guys in the mafia. Yeah, yeah. Right? It was a mob war, which is why the guy was dead, so... I think a lot of these themes kind of go with the Sopranos as well. If you've ever watched, well, the it's Sopranos. New Jersey, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, David Chase, the guy that did, I mean, there's a huge connection to Sopranos right. because Stephen Van Zant was is in it, it. Yeah, and he was a huge fan of him, and you know, he actually uses uh, State Trooper as the, uh, the season finale of season one. Yeah, that's one. right, that's right. I love that line there: "Put your makeup on and fix your hair up pretty, and just meet me tonight in Atlantic City." You know. It's, what what a thing to say, you know? Everything's so depressed. Like I'm trying to make this guy is just like failing on so many levels, and he's just gonna go. He's gonna get this one gig deal, and it's gonna go all well, you know. Hear that? I got debts. No honest man. Can honest pay. man can pay. He yeah. says that also in Johnny Ninety Nine. Yeah, that's right. It's the exact same thing. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, you can tell where he's trying to workshop these songs. Out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love the chorus. This is so pretty. Everything that dies someday comes back. And like I says, maybe everything that dies someday mm-hmm. comes back. I mean, so it's, it's that religious theme there again, but this is a guy that's not really sure. He's, he's being optimistic about it. 
but he's not really sure. This song originally was called Fistful of Dollars. Really? No kidding. That's interesting. That's a classic Western with Clint Eastwood in it. And this, you know, gamble with death, you put death on the line so that me and my baby can make it. Is that a little mandolin in the background there? Yeah. Sounds like it. Either that or he's doing student tremolo on his. On the acoustic, like way up on it. It's possible. It feels like Bob Dylan. Well, I was going to say the acoustic strumming pattern on that sounds like Bob Dylan. Right there, that. This is a great verse. I like the way that he, like the way he does that long eye and line. He goes line, you know. When he, he took that, he took that whole line past where that verse would have ended the rest of the time. So he kind of crams it in, but yeah. it's really cool. I, I noted that uh, when he sent this to the engineer, he was like, "I'm not really sure what to do with this," and it doesn't really, it doesn't really end that well. So, you know, just do whatever you want to with it. And God damn it, this is such a great song. <laughs> I, this is fantastic. Now, this one I'd actually heard before this, like you. I, right. I, the first time I heard it, it's like, well, I know that song. And, and, but that was it. I was like, I don't know why I know that right. song, but I know I've heard right. it before. He recorded this song on his demo four times. The second take was the one that, is, that we're listening to. That we're listening to. to right now? Yeah. Wow. That really sounds like a mandolin to me more than I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a mandolin. The way he does the uh, background vocals is really haunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And the idea that he did it just in his room, you know, just like mixing it down to that tape player right. that he dropped in the water. And once again, <laughs> if they had recorded this in the studio, you would have gotten the big backing vocals that he's so known for, but the, like the big anthemic stuff, but the haunting is way better. Yeah. This is Mansion on the Hill. Uh, this, to me, sounds just like the very first, because it's also in G, A, and D, mm-hmm. and right. it's playing the harmonica. It starts off in tune harmonica. this time. Yeah, is it? <laughs> this one sounds more in tune. This is a song about his dad, right? No. About his experience with his dad? Uh, this is, there was a rich guy uh, in, I think, Lindentown is where he grew up. And I think he even mentions that in one yeah, of the Yeah, I, th- I thought he said he used to walk in the town, and they'd walked past this big house, and his dad liked mm-hmm. to walk past yeah. the house kind yeah. of thing, yeah. But it it wasn't like, their house. It wasn't their house. Right. right. And they would just used to daydream about right. what it was like living in, in the mansion on the hill. Right. What would it be like to actually be up there? Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to down here. I think here. that's something everyone can relate to. Sure, sure. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, with again, Jason, with the old timey church hymns, I mean, how how long? How often do we talk about the castle in the sky? You know, mm-hmm. God's creating the the house for me. Oh, and, and mansion on the hill is a very religious reference. Well, yeah. and it's funny because there's a uh, a hymn we used to sing all the time, mansion on the hill. Yeah, there you, you know. And, and when I first saw the track listing of this album back in '99, I'm like, well, I wonder is he doing is he doing a, a hymn here? You know, right? So, but th- that imagery is, uh, yeah, looking up to something that you'd like to be there. Yeah. You, yeah, you're not there. You don't know if you could be there, but it's up there. So it works on aside from just being autobiographical it works on that metaphorical level very well with the themes of the album you know? 
Yeah, yeah here's where he's talking about his dad. Yeah. And it, isn't it interesting how his voice, he's like pulled back and he's singing really high and really soft on this. Like he's trying to make it work in the room, you know, just trying to get the vibe just right. Because he's singing so different than he did on the first yeah. two. Yeah. And once again, this is Dylan-esque with where mm-hmm. the harmonica kicks in and yeah. everything. He talks about his sister in a couple of these songs. Yeah. His little sister being in the car with him. Yeah, that's right. That's in the next verse. You're right. I think he mentions her in used cars, which I think is... Yeah, she's in the front seat, I think. Yeah, yeah. And what a beautiful way to describe it. Like, so you can almost... Like, I've never been to New Jersey, but it's almost like I can I can see what he's talking about, his hometown, just by what he's singing Well, and he's here. painting this really interesting picture here, right? The summer, the lights shine, there's music playing, people are outside laughing, it's so happy... And then we just kind of sit on the side of the road and stare at the mansion on the hill, yeah, right? Well, and everybody else—it's almost like everybody else is out having a good time, and they're still looking up to this thing that they want that they can't. And get. that last line: "Sit and listen." You're not just looking at the mansion on the hill; you're hearing the sound yeah, from the mansion. Yeah, you're feeling it. Well, and is that what's going on? Is they just sit there and listen, like, "Wow, they're having parties." Mm-hmm. What is it? The like? lights are up there. The kids are having a good, they're having fun up there. Yeah. We're down here imagining what that life. Right. Must We're down be here like. in the grime, and we have to deal with the factories and the burnout. Yeah, and this like this this, this blue collar existence that we live, and we're looking at what they're doing up there and how yeah. amazing it seems. Yeah. But once again, that's reli- that goes back to that religious imagery right. as well, right? Like we're stuck here on Earth, and we're mm-hmm. looking up. Yeah. So, poor kids wishing they were wealthy. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and that, that's the that's the gist of it. But once again, it works on multiple levels. So right. It's really good songwriting. Sure. Because he's he's painting this. He's got the imagery, but then there's the real story too. I mean, Jason, I, you could probably take this to church and sing it, and everyone mm-hmm. would sing along. And go like, that's right. a really good hymn. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it, it, it would do work, that. It would work Sunday. metaphorically. <laughs> you can do the harmonica. Like, hey, folks, on this song, I'm going to be playing the Glockenspiel. I never, I never could figure. I got one of those little <laughs> rack things that you put the harmonica in, and you. I, I hey, just remember what Hank Hill said about Christian rock. You're not making rock any better. You're just making Christianity there you worse. Go. <laughs> This is Johnny 99. Johnny 99. Yeah. Uh, we're doing uh, B, F sharp, and E. Probably played it in C, G, and F, but his and tuning K-Po. was off. Yeah. 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 Or, yeah, <laughs> Capo probably. So uh, this is recorded by Johnny Cash also. Was uh, it really? Johnny Cash actually had an album called Johnny 99, and this song and the next song were both on it. When was that? I'm not sure. Okay. I don't have the dates. But, but like 80s, have, 90s? Yeah. He went through yeah. a period in the 90s where he recorded, Johnny Cash recorded a lot of right. cover songs. Huge right. I think it was earlier than that. Okay. This is a song about a guy who's looking for money. He's down and out. Tries to uh, rob a cashier at a gas station. Ends up killing him. And here he is. And then here we go. We're, we're on our second murder song. <laughs> yeah. And he's talking to the judge again. You know, I think in the first song, Nebraska, it could be that he's talking to the judge. Yeah, I think so. And, and the very last line here, he's talking directly to the judge. He yeah. says, Your Honor, I do believe I'd be better off dead. You know, I mean, he, kill me if you want to. I think I'd probably be better for mm-hmm. you rather than stay in jail. I'm just going to go back to the third line of the song where he said, I came home too drunk from mixing Tanqueray, that's gin, and wine. Who in their right minds puts <laughs> gin and wine? wine? If you want to kill somebody, that's a great way to start. <laughs> I was taught that it's gin and juice that you're supposed to mix. 
Uh, <laughs> I do believe that rolling down the street, yeah. smoking yeah. Indo, yeah. sipping yeah. on <laughs> gin and juice. <laughs> Did you have your mind on your money? <laughs> and your money on your mind? Okay. Yeah. Just make so, sure. So what's funny is that. Like, there are songs, like folk songs, that reference someone named John Brown. I think that's such a give up, you know? But what's funny is the judge's name is John Brown, and we actually yes. know someone who's an attorney. John, named John, his Brown. John Brown, yeah. yeah so he could very well be a judge someday. So. <laughs> but you're right, the John, John Brown is a reoccurring theme, right? I love that blues. This is one I could actually have seen they could have done with the E Street Band and probably would have sounded like a Bruce Springsteen song. Was this one on? Did they do this? in the USA? No. There's that. The, the you know I mean? It's got that upbeatness to it. Yeah. The, the line, he says, I got no debts an honest man can pay. That's we just, we heard that from yeah. Atlantic City. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He says the bank was taking my mortgage. Taking my house away. Yeah. Yeah, and so this guy's down and out. He was, he was like, I was pushed into this. I didn't want to go rob the liquor store. You made me rob the liquor store. Which, I had to rob the liquor store. Which is different from Carl uh, Starkweather. Who was, was just like, killing people. Yeah, I'm just right. mean. Yeah. yeah. This guy was just kind of down and out to the left. And how many regular people have gotten themselves into that point where they're now, you know, facing death because they were just down and out? Yeah, just down and out. Had to go, I had to go steal. They were going to take and, my house. And up and, to this point, no one had ever sung about that. And that goes back to the time period and maybe why it was so popular, but because because everything was going on at that time. The right. oil field crashed. And, you, yeah. know, everything. you know, when we were talking about that earlier, I had the farm and the rust belt, but that's right. Mm-hmm. The oil field crashed then, too. Yeah. I forgot about that. It was real bad for a whole lot of people yeah. at this time. The way he describes this in this last line... Won't you sit back in that chair and think it over one more time? Let him shave off my hair and put me on the execution line. Holy, <laughs> that's harsh. That's a tough one. This one drags on for me. I, I so, recognize this is a great song, but it drags for me. It's it's it, funny because this is actually my favorite song on it, the album. Is yeah, it? I love this. I love this song. G A and D. Mm-hmm. Once again, so this Be- is, beautiful song, by the way. Yeah. yeah. This. So I, I agree with you. I agree with both of you. This is a great song. It's one of my favorites. On this album, it does go on forever. Yeah, yeah. it's a long song, and, and and it's got some weird. I guess there's some points in here. I'm like, man, why didn't he clean that up a little bit? You know, yeah, but right. but it goes back to the, the demo, the yeah, demo aspect yeah, of yeah. it. The song was originally called Deputy, by the way. This is one of those songs that could have benefited from somebody playing an instrumental mm-hmm. section. You know, give me give me a couple of guitar riffs right. here, or just something to break up the space. Yeah, and this one was also recorded by Johnny Cash. Was it really? This yeah. actually sounds like something Johnny Cash would sing. Wow. Well, and uh, we talked about that deer hunter of concept of Vietnam right, vets. Right. His brother Frankie comes back. Comes from back Vietnam, from Vietnam. Right. And he is screwed up mm-hmm. from way messed he up. Saw, yeah. Right? But he says Frankie was always bad. Yeah. Well, that was the thing too. He was bad from the get go, and then he came back even worse. Yeah. And, and I love the whole theme in this, like that. When it's your brother, sometimes mm-hmm. you look the other way. Just all I gotta let him go. He's my brother. He's my family. You know that kind of tortured morality. Mm-hmm. You know. I put everybody else in jail, but it's my brother. What are you gonna I, do? I love right? that line there. Nothing feels better than blood, blood on, on blood. blood. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the song is about a guy who ends up being a police officer. His brother ends up killing someone in a bar fight 
and he answers the call, realizes it's his brother, mm-hmm. goes after chasing his brother because he knew where he was going to be, right. and he's behind him, and he's chasing him as they're going over the Canada border, and right when he gets to the point where he has him in his grasp, he stops the car and lets him go. And that's yeah. the last time he sees his brother, he sees the, the taillights going Taking away. Taking off in the Canada. Yeah. And, and, and he misses his brother, but he also realizes that sometimes you got to stand up for your family. Right. Yeah, he could do if he'd arrested his brother, then then what? Yeah. How would he have been able to answer to the rest of his yeah. family for that? And, and that's blood on blood. And I think right? that's yeah. my favorite line is that last line in the chorus. Man turns his back on his family. Man, He's saying no good. good. Yeah. 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 And so once again, those are some themes that fit within that kind of middle America that he's singing to, you know, some guy on wall street doesn't, and I'm just generalizing here from the songs, you know, but some guy out in the East coast doesn't care about his family. Right. And he'll sell anybody out for a dollar, but out here we care about our family. And he's singing. What's interesting. I always talk about Jason Isbell and the fact that he's able to create a song that, uh, you know, he's totally writing the song. He's totally making it up, making it all up. Yeah. yeah. He's writing the song about someone who's in Traverse city, Michigan, you know, (laughs) how in the world does Bruce Springsteen know what it's like? But I'll be damned if you don't listen to this and you go, I know exactly what he's talking about. Sure. I I could, I've never been to Canada. I could almost picture his lights fading away in the maple trees. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, you goes back to like the James McMurtry's we were talking about earlier. Those guys that can write a song and paint a picture and you're like, Wow, that, I feel like I'm there. I feel yeah. like, and to your point, mm-hmm. I feel like I can see the taillights going across the border. It's just so real. Yeah. Guitar and harmonica is the only thing that's going on here. Guitar, harmonica, and him singing, right. and G, A, and D. No other chords. The whole way through. Yeah. It's like he's creating a really small hole with his mouth. And just kind of just barely put those words out there, you know, just barely singing it. Yeah, he, he's definitely been all over the place with the vocal delivery. I mean, he still sounds like Bruce Springsteen, right. obviously, right? He's still got that whatever it is that Bruce Springsteen yeah. sounds like, but he's definitely singing it different. You know, and once again, you can. It's is, is he feeling trying to fill out the vibe for the song and trying to set down something different in each track so he can come back to it later, or is it just how he just thought it needed to sound? I don't know. How would you ever put this with the E Street Band? Can you imagine the saxophone <laughs> solo on this? Where would you put a guitar solo? Like, where would you put any kind of solo with this? Well, and, and I said that at the beginning of the song, this could use an instrumental break, but then I could also imagine a guitar player completely making this guilty as charged, making this go even longer than it needed to, you know? Yeah. So this next line is what I'm talking about. It's like he crams so many words in that they don't fit. Kind of makes it, it kind of yeah. makes it difficult to yeah. see, and, and what's funny is it does drag on. So, so in that time when me and Ed were playing at these Irish pubs, when I when he introduced me to this album, I'm like, man, we got to do that song. It doesn't go well <laughs> in a live pub setting. All you hear is glasses clinking and people just talk louder. So we did it one time, and that and, was and it. That was it. <laughs> well, and, and that's funny. Some of this stuff doesn't go well, right? And, unless. You're there to see, like mm-hmm. if it was Bruce Springsteen, then obviously the fans are right. and they're just going to shut up and listen right. to him, you know. But if it's an well, old, and you're playing in a pub, you're, you're that's a whole other ball game. Right? Background you're, music, you're, anyway. yeah, your background yeah. entertainment, right, right. Yeah, you're right. That's a that's a hell of a line. Mm-hmm. 
he fades out. Not because he was trying to fade out or because he didn't have anything. It wasn't meant to be a song. And you know what? And I'm I'm going with what you said earlier on with that. You're right. This is my favorite song on the album. Is it really? Again, this one's... I thought it was a Steve Earle song. Right. And and (laughs) so not only... State Trooper, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. So Steve Earle, Cowboy Junkies, recorded this uh, on the live album. Really? And Drive-By Truckers have done this song. Wow, no kidding. All great versions also. Well, the inspiration that he had for so many people that yeah, that's crazy, and that's a that's a diverse crew right mm-hmm. there. We're talking yeah. about three very oh, yeah. different stylistic groups yeah, I, doing the same and I song. I highly recommend the Cowboy Junkies version. I don't really? know if you are uh, Margot Tennis. Oh yeah, yeah, they did. I'll check it out. They did that um, uh, that Velvet Underground song. Yeah, yeah, that's right. What is that? I know what you're talking about. Um, I'll think of it. Haunting song, by the way. Yeah, like you said earlier, like he's just please don't pull me over. I sweet, don't, sweet Jane, I, sweet Jane. Sweet, yeah, there you go. Yeah, don't pull me over. I don't want to have to kill you. <laughs> I can see you back there. Maybe you have a pretty wife. Maybe you, maybe have you a got family. a kid. You got a pretty wife. Yeah, think about this before you pull me over. And and the impending doom, the the impending evil that's just kind of out there that the cop never realizes. It. Yeah, it's just mm-hmm. it's just like hanging over his head the whole time, right? He's playing this, in but eight. I love this line. The only thing that I, that I got's been bothering me my whole life. <laughs> right. Yeah, he's got something going on. With <laughs> yeah. Him, right? Where's where's he going? Wherever he's going, you better not stop him. He's playing this in an, in an A minor blues, by the way. Yeah, I like the fact that this this is great storytelling because we drop into a piece and we leave a piece, mm-hmm. right? Like we don't have an intro story. Like the last song we heard about him and his brother, and then this happened. This is just like we literally drop into an episode. You know? mm-hmm. The episode's going, and then the episode's over, and that's it. Well, and the, the funny thing about this is, are we about to witness a murder? Right. You know, is he prefacing a murder that's about to happen? Because he didn't tell us. Uh, he it, just tells it, us. It seems like it, but you don't know. That's the genius of it, right? Absolute genius. He's going to see his baby. I love this line. <laughs> That's really good. He's begging him not to. Ha- don't make me kill you. Please don't why, pull me over. Why do you man? make me be mean to you? Man? And here it goes back to that religious thing. Somebody out there listening to my last prayer. Hear those hoots That's that right. he's doing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those hoots that he's doing, those yells? Uh, he actually took that from a uh, punk song by a group called Suicide, called Frankie Teardrop, where they did a lot of those screamings, and he was listening to a lot of suicide stuff, and so that's where he based. So he that just dropped from. it in there. Yeah. Oh wow! Okay. Again, he was in a dark place. He was in a depressed sure. state, and he just was kind of finding out what's what's the lowest that I could go here. Well, it, it definitely comes out yeah. in the songs. Yeah. I mean, this is when this is. I mean, this seems like a song about a guy that's got nothing to lose, right? Yeah, right. Like, I'm going where I'm going. If you pull me over, I'm still going. So, yeah. up to, totally up to you. Yeah. That right there. Suicide Frankie Teardrop. <laughs> and that right there is probably the most haunting fade out ever. <laughs> With him screaming? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is used cars. Again, once again, a G, A, and D. Harmonica, Glockenspiel. This is autobiographical. This is uh, his dad's going to buy a used car. Someday he's going to make it and he won't have to ride in a used car. Yeah, I love that line. He goes, when my ship comes in, I'm never going to drive in a used car again. The song, I mean, he, he writes about stuff that, that we can all relate to. And yeah, that's, I, that's, I, I, yeah, I was going to say, we all probably 
I mean, I, we all grew up with our parents buying used cars, mm-hmm. right? You know, I mean, I remember going to the car lot when I was little and test driving cars and stuff. You know, I mean, it's just it, it's an experience that m- most people had at the time. Get, get what you can get, and that's yeah. the best you can do. Yeah, and it's such simple songwriting, but but still powerful. Absolutely, I mean, I, I, it reminds me of I'm, I'm a Chris Christopherson fan. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of you know, it's, it's elegant songwriting, but it's also but simple. It, it's simple right. stuff. Reminds me a lot of well gonna say billy joe shaver that simple stuff but, sure but, but it's powerful when you put it all together you know, yeah absolutely yeah that's the line the lot mm-hmm. day i win the lottery i'm never gonna ride a news car again and there's, there's a glockenspiel <laughs> the glockenspiel kind of adds this like childhood innocence it does you know, it's whimsical like, yeah almost like a like a music box in a baby's mm-hmm. nursery so I think there's a, there's kind of a funny uh, thing here, right? Because he's he's embarrassed about the used car shopping. Mm-hmm. But then that line, he talks about how they pull up the house and the neighbors all come over to see the new car. Mm. Yeah, he, He's not appreciating and he doesn't understand. Like, to him, it's embarrassing they're going used car shopping. But everybody else is like, hey, you got a new car. Wow, look at you. Check it out. You know? <laughs> wow. Where'd you get that new car? Where'd you get the car? <laughs> Where'd you get your car? People from New Jersey are going to be on their way here right now to kill us. <laughs> and why does your son talk like he's from Kentucky? <laughs> Yeah, that line was my dad sweats the same job from morning to morning. And I walk the same streets. You know, he, he doesn't appreciate. You know, it's a child's view of his father. It's like, ah, dad's buying used cars. He works the same job all day. And dad's like, I bought a car. I'm proud of it. I don't know what to tell you. I'm in the same place I was when I was born. I'm not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Dad didn't go anywhere. This mm-hmm. is a dead end. I mean, right. He's telling a dead end story. But once again, he's not. He doesn't like his father. Obviously, has a sense of pride in what he's accomplished yeah, in his yeah. life, and it's the son not appreciating what his father feels like he's accomplished, yeah. right? Well, it's a little Oedipal, right? Like I'll, sure, sure. You know, Dad has to struggle. I'm never going to struggle like that. And what do we end up doing? We end up S- doing the exact same, same thing, thing. Our father yeah, does, yeah. right? And, and once again, this is a song for what Bruce Springsteen was singing to, like everything we talked about before, the Rust Belt, Middle America, all that was going on at the time. This is a song that would resonate with so many of the people that listen to yeah. his music, right? Yeah. Or, or in Georgia? or All, in, all through the, the South? South? Yeah, 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 yeah. God, these are short songs. It's crazy, isn't it? This is the electric guitar song. This is open all night. Uh, it's blues in the E, but he's got the capo on the second. And this is a hot, hot... This is actually kind of an upbeat song. It's a car song. He's a mechanic. Going to tune this car up. You know, let it go open all night long. Okay, this is my absolute least favorite song on this album. <laughs> the song originally was called Wanda. Tell me this is not just Johnny B. Good with different lyrics. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it totally is. I mean, it's a happy song. It doesn't really fit the theme of the rest of the... Sure. Yeah, but maybe someone who lives a dark life, someone who lives kind of a bleak existence, sometimes they have some happiness. Oh, sure, yeah. Maybe the joy is the car. I mean, it's funny that this this car song comes right after the used car. Right. You know? This song inspired the song I'm Going Down on Born in the USA. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And at the very end, he ends up running out of lyrics, doesn't know how to end it, and so he ends up going, bee ba dop and doo bop ba dee ba dop and doo bop Now, I love do doot and doos. I don't know, but but yeah, doot and does. I'm good. very anti do doot and doos. <laughs> I love the doot and doot I think we've established that. <laughs> That's a very uh, funny line, right? My boss don't dig me, so he puts me on the night shift. <laughs> well, and Hank's talked about 
fitting lyrics in. Jason, how many words is he squeezing in here? Yeah. Yeah. Right? How'd you like to perform this one? Be a little rough. You know, <laughs> yeah, I'd be to sing all this. Yeah. It's a mouthful. It kind of, you know, mentioned that and, and the influences he had. It reminds me of the Hayes Carl down the yeah. road tonight. You yeah. know, there's okay. so many words, and, and again, he doesn't know how to end the song. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's a, that's, that's a good catch there. That whole wiping our fingers on a Texaco roadmap is a very dated thing to say, right? <laughs> yeah. He talks about Wanda here. He says, I remember Wanda up on the scrap middle hill. That's why I originally called this Wanda. Gotcha. By the way, you know, uh, he says daddy. Now, he says that in Born in the USA. I'm a long, tall daddy mm-hmm. in the USA. That actually came from Hank Williams. Really? Hank, Hank Williams said, I'm a long gone daddy. Yeah. Yeah. So he just borrowed that? Nice. Yeah. Weird that a guy from New Jersey would. Well, obviously, country quite influenced, right? right? Here, listen to him fade out here. Here's our Didi does. Go, Johnny, go, go, go. (laughs) (laughs) Track number nine is My Father's House. This is uh, G-A-N-D, once again. And once again, we're back to this old-timey hills. He's talking about his father again. His father's house. He's talking about his father's house, and he's telling a story about going to his father's house, knocking on the door, and the woman comes and says, what are you looking for? And he says, I'm looking for somebody. And she says, he didn't live here anymore. Uh, he actually talks about the fact that he went to his therapist and talked about trying to get back to his dad. And the therapist said, you, you realize what you're trying to do. You're trying to go back and replicate that relationship so you can heal it. And he says, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. And the therapist says, you can't do that. And this is this is him realizing, I can't do that. I can't capture my dad's attention from hmm. When I was a kid, gotcha. What's it with a New Jersey and therapist, huh? <laughs> That's another Sopranos reference. Sorry. <laughs> the vibrato he puts on his voice there is cool. Yeah. And he kind of swallows his normal twang affectation that he puts on. He does that, my, you know. Yeah, it's very, it's noticeable, actually, yeah. My, hear that? (laughs) The the devil snapping at my heels. Yeah, but he doesn't say my, like I say my. He says my, you know, that very New Jersey type Mm -hmm. accent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My father's house. But how many hymns have we listened to in church, Jason, that sound just like this? (laughs) Yeah. And, and once again, going back to the other one, my father's house. Like mm-hmm. literally, yeah. I could be at a, a, a Baptist church on Sunday morning, and this right. could be the hymn that was being sung. You know, in the first three verses, he's talking about like the trouble he had. To, he's going, he's fighting through the brambles, he's fighting through the trees, he's fighting through the bushes, he's climbing up the house, he's trying to get there. The right? Struggle. Mm-hmm. The struggle. Yeah, there's a struggle for him to get to his mm-hmm. father's house. So it's it's very religious. Yeah. Works on a couple different levels. And again, with that Oedipal complex of like not matching up to your father, 
right. you know, maybe that's how we feel and from a Christian standpoint. You know, that's the whole thing is we never match up to you know the Western Christian the Heavenly Father, right? Yeah. But like you never, I mean. Well, let's be honest. Every man kind of struggles a little bit to feel like you live up to that's, that's your the father, complex, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. God, he's a good singer. He is. He's got a real. Uh, he really carries his voice well. Mm-hmm. Sustain his his yeah, sustain. His yeah. voice is good. From out on the road, I could see now he doesn't ever push. Really far, he stays. He stays within a, a pretty specific range. I on this, think. Uh, well, on this album, on this album for yeah. sure, yeah. Born in the USA is totally different. But once again, this is also not a guy in front of a microphone with a backing band that yeah. can push because there's all that noise behind yeah. him. This is a guy in a room with an acoustic guitar, so you are going to tend to be a little more even keeled. Yeah, you've got to have your stuff together when it's just you and a guitar. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You can't hide behind the other instruments. Or... Yeah, I mean, an acoustic guitar is notoriously, I, I think, the hardest to play in mm-hmm. front of people because there's no, there's no feedback. There's no, there's nothing to hide your right. mistakes. Yeah. You got to real, and singing is the same way. If it's just you and an instrument, you can't hide behind anything else. I mean, unless you go back and dub in a Glockenspiel and <laughs> harmonica. Now, listen, I don't think anybody's hiding behind a Glockenspiel here. Okay? <laughs> What just needs is more Glockenspiel. I got a fever. <laughs> so to go back about how influential this one is, there's, uh, we've already talked about there's so many songs that were covered by other people. This one was actually covered by Emily Lou Harris. Really? Yeah. Oh, I love Emily. No Lou kidding. Harris. Yeah. I could totally hear her singing mm-hmm. this song. I, I'm gonna have to go find that. I would like to listen to her singing yeah. that song. I imagine well, her, I voice her voice would just kill it. Oh, yeah. her voice is so great. Here's that uh, tambourine. Okay, so once again, this last verse is insanely religious imagery. Mm-hmm. There's so much reverb on his voice. This dark highway where our sins lie unatoned. Unatoned is not a word you hear in uh, that's, that's a pretty song, man. Rock and roll very often. Yeah. No, that was that was really beautiful. We're down to the last song. This is Reason to Believe. And he talks about things coming back to life. He talks about his dog. Uh, that the dead dog is laying there. Maybe the dog got hit by a car, and the dog he's hoping for it to come back to life. You know? Or maybe the the girl that he pined after finally comes back to him. Maybe she'll come back. This is one that I think I could see the entire band doing. This has got more of his feel, like his album, normal album, live music feel to it. But it kind of has that chugging, chugging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You can see this becoming kind of an anthemic tune. And there's, there's actually a good spot in here for his saxophone player to step in. So, well, and we just finished. We're about to finish this entire album of bleak darkness, and there's just a little bit of optimism to end the album. Yeah, he ends it with reason to believe, which is the most upbeat song on the album. So.
and I would admit I'm probably the weakest of the guitar players sitting at this table right now. Uh, but we could all play every single song on this thing, right? I mean, oh, absolutely, yeah. Not really complicated, but man, to be able to fit all these words and to write this and make it feel the way it does. I mean, that's just mastery of your craft. There's, there's nothing. I think we would all agree. There's nothing musically complicated about this in any right. stretch of the imagination. No. Poetically, yes. Yeah, this is, this is all about the lyrics mm-hmm. and the imagery and everything else. Yeah. This is, this is a songwriter's album. And I think that's why it was so appealing to me because I am a simple guitar player. I need, I need the simplicity. And like I said, I can sit and play. I can play every song on this album along with him, other than Nebraska, because well, if I. You'd have to you'd if have to I, out of tune. If I untune yeah. my guitar, <laughs> sometimes I find it helps to just drop it a couple times yeah. on the carpet. Right. And it kind of gets right. itself out, and then you just kind of go from there. My first guitar. I still have my first guitar, and it's Dove, my Dovey, yeah. and uh, she stays out of tune all the time anyway. <laughs> so I can play along with it just fine. <laughs> you know, I still have my first acoustic guitar. It's an Alvarez, and it. I'll play it once a year, and it's still in tune. Really? If the thing stays in tune, it's unbelievable. It's incredible. I have to, I have to tune mine mid-song sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Hondo. Oh, there you go. <laughs> it was made in Fort Worth, Texas. Well, there's nothing worse than trying to play a guitar that's out of tune. It, it'll drive you insane, yeah. won't it? So or trying to play along with somebody that's out of tune. Yeah. Right, right. It was, it was. I think it was Jack Ingram that said playing a guitar out of tune is kind of like when you're smoking weed and you forget what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so he references a baby. He's going to take a river, a baby to the river to baptize him, and his name is Kyle William. My son is John William, and he was almost John Kyle. Really? Yeah. Named after Kyle Field at Texas A&M. Well, that's... And my father-in-law, he ended up John William, my father-in-law, and my father. That's right. That's right. Congregation. I mean, he's talking about your congregation. Uh, we got the re- religious overtones, and this, yeah, this, this isn't even very, overtones. This is like straight yeah, up. This one's very religious, and I think it's cool to, that he ends the album with this because it's all dark, and then all of a sudden, hey, we got some, we're still looking for a reason to yeah, believe. Yeah, yeah, So even even though it's not done yet, th- right. there's meanness, there's evil. Th- there's still a reason to believe. There's yeah. still a reason to go on, even with all the the, the murder and the sadness and the poverty and everything else there's still a reason i mean and the song ends with you got the kids we got the groom getting ready to be married we got the everybody's down there it's still okay yeah you know at the end of the day it's still okay and you know what way to go you open this whole thing with talking about like the world we live in right now and recording from home because of all the shutdowns we have that's kind of a positive thing right there's still a reason to believe yeah you know it's not all it's not all it's not all black it's not all bad it's not all dark which i mean what a perfect way to to create an album yeah if he'd opened with this and then given us the rest of it, we would have gone, what? what? <laughs> Plus, he didn't fade out. And for that, my friends, I will give him all the credit in the world. <laughs> High fives on that one, yeah. What do you think, Jason? I enjoyed it. This is fun, yeah. right? It's a great album. Uh, and this is an album that uh, I think we've had this one in the can for at least a couple months. Like we Yeah, we have. About it, right? yeah. Uh, and we, I wasn't really sure putting it together because it was my choice. I was I was trying to figure out like how are we going to put this together? And when you said let's bring in Hanks to do this, I'm like Psh, that's it. And this thing kind of came together after. That. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and thanks for being here, man. Because well, I appreciate uh, your, your, really uh, your your input was really a lot of fun. Yeah, I think you added a lot to the conversation. Definitely some things that uh, neither one of us knew, which was you know, as far as music goes, mm-hmm. which was cool. So well, and the great th- the great thing about this whole project was you and I when we talked about this, this was us talking about tunes yeah. and and what do we like to do more than anything with anybody else is talk tunes. And talk Jason tunes, yeah. is somebody that we like talk to. I like to come so, yeah. up here while you are trying to do real work and, and, <laughs> and, talk, tunes, and right? talk tunes. So, but no, this like I said, this album uh, I really 
man, again, a, a shout out to my bud, Ed, for just introducing me to this album because, and, and it was all about timing. Because, like I said, if it would have came five years earlier, I'd have probably never listened to the album yeah. again. You know, so I think I think the music comes to you when you need it to come to you. So yeah, that's that's, that's a good point. I, yeah. I agree with you on that. Well. We appreciate you so much listening to us today. This has been Bruce Springsteen's album, Nebraska. Jason, we appreciate you coming in. And uh, we look forward to many more conversations talking about some of our favorite albums. Thanks for hanging with us.